We're probably familiar with uh, the term time warp, okay, time warp. A time warp is when you are like living in one time, but you have an experience in, in another time. Now, often this is like from the past, right? So we go to a museum, for example, and we feel like we're stepping back in time, and we see the way that people lived, and we see, you know, their utensils and their homes and places like this. Of course, this can be a a depressing experience if you go to like the Smithsonian and you see toys that you played with as a child at the Smithsonian, right? Anybody ever see their dishes in a museum? Be honest. I see a few hands. Okay, thank you for that honesty. Uh, So what does that insinuate when things from your life are already in a museum? Don't think about that too long, but we know what that insinuates, doesn't it? Time warps from the future, though, are much harder to come by because we don't really have anything from the future in the present. Now, we may see something that looks sort of futuristic and we'll say it's a sign of things to come, and we feel like maybe we're getting a sense of the, of the future, but we don't have anything from the future. There are no museums of the future. If we're going to have this experience, we rely largely on uh, Hollywood. You know, we might watch the Jetsons or uh, the example that comes to me most clearly, uh, there was a trilogy of movies that kind of played with this theme that I'm talking about. Uh, This is dating me a little bit back in the 80s, I think in early 90s, called Back to the Future. And in in the series, the main character, Marty McFly, Uh, and Doc have a time machine, and they go from 1985, when the first movie came out, all the way back to 1955. They're in their hometown of Hill Valley, California. And they go back in time, and Marty looks around, and it looks so different, you know, and he's meeting people that he knows in 1985, but now they're younger, including his parents, and he's sort of having this sort of creepy feeling of meeting people back when they were, when they were younger. And of course, the town folk there, they don't know what to make of him either. He talks different, and he dresses different, and his music is different. They look at him and they wonder, what is he all about? And what they don't realize is that in him, they are actually having an experience of the future. If they were realized it, they would realize that to be around him would be to get a glimpse at what the future is going to be like. And today, friends, spiritually speaking, we're all living in Hill Valley, California. We're all living in the present. We can see the past. We can read the books, we can talk to people from the past, we can remember our own past, but we don't know what the future will be like as much as we would wish we could. There are people called futurists who write books about this, and they project what mankind and civilization are going to be like in the future. I think of Stephen Hawking as an example of this, who often writes about what he thinks is going to happen to human civilization, typically we're living on Mars because we've destroyed the earth and things like this. But uh, that's a big business. Many people read those books and want to know what the future is like. But nobody really knows the future. Our teaching uh, here at Bethel Church since uh, the beginning of the school year has been from the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the same gospel that John turned to in his hotel room. And 
we've been talking specifically about the Gospel of Matthew as it relates to the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is something that when Jesus was here, he talked about all the time. To hear a Jesus sermon was to hear about the kingdom of God. And uh, if he was preaching on Easter, I think he would talk about the kingdom of God. And uh, many people don't know what the kingdom of God is, and so we've been talking about this and what the Bible teaches about it. Essentially, the kingdom of God is an alternate kingdom to the kingdom of man. We all live in the kingdom of man. It's all we've ever known. We've lived here our whole life. It's the world that is around us. Jesus came into the world and said, there's an alternate kingdom that you can be a part of. The kingdom of God is the reign of God through Christ. It is the power of God in the human heart. It is, a, it is an invisible kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom for now. And it comes to a human being when he or she recognizes that he is a sinner and believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and puts his hope and his trust, not in his own righteousness, not in his good works, but in what Jesus did dying on the cross. The kingdom of God is then brought to that human being. Jesus is enthroned in their heart. The majesty of Jesus, the reign and rule of Jesus is brought to that person's life. And it begins a new reality. It begins a new life for them. We saw one example in, uh, in the video that we saw of John's testimony. Jesus is enthroned. He rules and reigns in that life. Now, I think that's great news, and I think you should think it's great news, because can we agree that the kingdom of man stinks? It stinks. Now, you might be here right now, and you're like, my my life doesn't stink. My life's kind of like awesome. Just wait, right? Just wait. It doesn't matter how young you are, how good looking you are, how much like you have the world by the tail. Eventually, life takes us down this road where we realize that we are all in the process of becoming past tense. We are, but very soon we will be wases. We is, but we will be was very soon. And that's just the reality in this world. There's brokenness in this world, and there is, there's uh, bad head colds, and there are diseases, and there are problems. And no doubt, in this room with this many people here, if we could hear, right, the hearts here, lots of pain in the room right now. That's the kingdom of man. As a pastor, I'll, I get talking with people, and oftentimes they'll begin to complain, you know, about their life, or maybe complain about the state of the world, or they'll complain, you know, politically about what's going on, whatever. And oftentimes, I wait for them to take a breath, and I'll interject, I'll say, it's almost as if the world needs a Savior. And they're often like, oh, that's good. And it's so true, isn't it? When we really stop and think about what it means to live in the kingdom of man, if there was some other kingdom that we could be a part of, some other life, some other reality, who wouldn't want to get out of this kingdom and to live for that one? And that's what Jesus came into this world. He says, hey, listen, your life stinks, and I can heal this and all that, but you're going to die anyway. I'm here to tell you there's a whole new life available through me. And he called it the kingdom of God. He is the king of the kingdom. Now, people can say whatever they want, and maybe there were some people there, like maybe in the room right now, that hear these words of Jesus, and it's like, blah, 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 blah. 
right? Bunch of nonsense, a bunch of hooey. How would you ever know if what that person was saying was something that you could believe, indeed stake your future on? So I want to just put a bookmark right there. We're going to come back to that because I want to tell you the story of Easter from the Gospel of Matthew. And this brings us to the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're in Matthew 28. I'll have the verses on the screens for you if you don't have a Bible. But there's a big backstory that I want to tell before we get into it. So here's the backstory. Around 2,000 years ago, an angel, yes, a supernatural being, appeared to a young virgin named Mary in northern Israel, in Galilee, in a town called Nazareth. And the angel appeared to her and said, you are going to give birth to the Son of God. Now Mary was sharp, she understood the ways of the world, and she's a virgin, and she says the natural question, how is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel said, this is something that God is going to do within you, this is going to be a miracle. And so we see from the beginning of Jesus' life, it is supernatural, okay? It is supernatural. And nine months later, he's born, and angels again appear, and they declare that he is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Messiah, born in Bethlehem. We call that Christmas. For 30 years, this Jesus lived in relative obscurity, lived there in Nazareth. When he, when he was 30 years old, he began a very public ministry, And this is how he ministered. He went into towns and villages, and he told them about the kingdom of God. And he taught, and people had never heard anything like what he was saying, and they crowded him by thousands of people. He was just like, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to hear what he had to say. And at the same time, he is healing people. And the kind of healing is not, oh, you have a cold, now you don't have a cold, right? It's like, you don't have a limb, now you have a limb. You can't see, now you can see. You're deaf, now you can hear, even to the extent of raising people from the dead. This Jesus, he ruined every funeral he went to because he would go and he'd raise the person from the dead. That's the kind of miracles that he was doing. Just imagine if somebody like that was around today, right? It would just, everybody be talking about him. Everybody was talking about Jesus. And all the while he was saying, these miracles that I'm doing to you confirm what I'm telling you that I am the Son of God. He told his disciples, he said, listen, we're going to Jerusalem and here's what's gonna happen. The religious leaders are going to arrest me. I'm going to be killed, but on the third day I'm gonna rise again. The disciples, this was like they couldn't process that. They didn't, it didn't register with them. And, but this is indeed what happened. And so the cataclysmic events that are most important all center on one week in Jerusalem. It was Passover week. And so uh, biggest event on the calendar year for the Jews, Jerusalem is crowding with people. There's tens of thousands of people that are coming in, adding to this mass population there in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes in on Sunday riding a donkey, as prophecy said, presenting himself as the king. And for that week, he teaches and ministers in the area around Jerusalem and in the temple. And all the while, there are detractors and enemies that are conspiring to kill him, mainly the religious establishment, for whom Jesus is a threat. And they don't just want him silenced, they want him dead. And the story of Jesus is that these individuals paid off a member of his inner circle to betray him at night when the crowds weren't there, 
to protect him. And he was arrested. They manipulate the governor at the time, a guy named Pilate, a very aspirational governor who they manipulated. They played him like a cheap fiddle, and they got him to sentence Jesus to crucifixion, death by crucifixion. And Jesus was crucified on Friday. He, at noon, the sky grew black as God begins in those moments to do what Jesus said, that he came to be a ransom for the sins of mankind. The Father puts upon him the guilt and the shame of our sin, and he is now the sin substitute. He's dying in our place. Can I say, friend, he's dying in your place? At three o'clock, he cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. The Romans, who were the best in history at this, certify that he is dead. His body is given over to some faithful followers who prepare his body, and they place him in a tomb that was near where he was crucified, basically a sort of hewn out part of the rock, and they rolled a large stone. This was the practice of the day, a large stone in front of that tomb, and that happened by six o'clock on Friday. Time goes now, so that's Friday. Saturday comes, Sabbath, nobody's allowed to do anything, everything's quiet. Sabbath passes, and Sunday morning, We pick up the story now from Matthew. Listen to what happened. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Mary Magdalene, hero in the story. This is a faithful follower of Jesus. She was there when he died. She was there, actually helped prepare his body for burial. Uh, Jesus had brought freedom to her from demonic oppression. And a big hero in the story, and my wife Jennifer and I named our second daughter Madeline after Mary Magdalene. We love Mary Magdalene. There's another Mary, and the Gospels tell us there's actually several other women who are part of this troop who are going to Jesus' grave. Why are they going? They go for the same reason that we go. In fact, I I had somebody in our church Friday night at the Good Friday service told me They said, today's the one-year anniversary of my mother's death, and I spent a lot of time at her graveside today. Why did he do that? Because there's something in us that we feel a, a connection, an ongoing connection when we are even at the grave of a loved one. And for these women, they admired Jesus, they loved Jesus, and they, you know, they weren't expecting him to die. They thought he was the Messiah, and they couldn't do anything on Passover. But the very first, very first day in the morning, time in the morning, they are on their way. They want to go. They want to pay homage. They want to finish the burial process. And uh, so at first light, to be Sunday by the Jewish calendar, slightly after 6 a.m., we pick up the story. Look what happens. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This is now the second earthquake in three days. There was an earthquake when Jesus died. Such a quake that the centurion who feels the earthquake, sees everything that happens, looks up, points at Jesus, and declares, surely this man was the Son of God. He basically is converted by the power of that experience. And now here we are uh, these days later, and there is another earthquake. In fact, in the Greek, it's megaquake. 
Sounds like a movie title, doesn't it? Mega quake. So this is not like a, hey, do you feel something? You know, this is like this kind of thing. And earthquakes in the Bible often accompany divine activity. It's like God is wanting to communicate to us something big just happened. And indeed, something really big just happened. Added to the earthquake now is the appearance of an angel. It says the angel of the Lord. There are thousands of angels, but this is the angel of the Lord. This is a presumably very powerful, very glorious angel who descends, presumably from the sky, comes right down in front of those women there at the tomb, and the text says that he rolls back the stone. John says that he flings it like a Frisbee. Apparently big stones are no big deal for an angel, right? Just, there it goes. And he sits down on that stone. His appearance is noted here. It says that he looked like lightning. Did you notice in the video that we began the service with, the the sign language was was lightning? Did you get what it is? It's very, very hard to remember. Very, very complicated sign. Are you ready for lightning? Did you get that? How did they come up with that? I don't know, but it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? What's lightning like? Just like that. And it's there, and then it's gone. But if you're staring at it, it's like you close your eyes and you see lightning for like three days. It's so bright and brilliant. And the women who are there and tell Matthew what it was like and what he looked like, they say the closest thing that we can come up with, what his appearance was like, it was like, if, it was like lightning sustained. Like imagine that brilliance. The angel, he is so brilliant. He is so bright. He is so radiant and effulgent. The closest thing we have is like if lightning just remained in that brilliance. Quite a sight, right? Now, the effect of that angel and the earthquake coming down is profound on some of the toughest guys of the day. The Roman guards here, it says, at the sight of the angel, become like dead men. In military terms today, we call it being shell-shocked. And in warfare, there are many stories of uh, people who, because of, like, let's take World War II, the bombardment and the power and the, just the concussion and all of that, it sends them into a kind of paralysis where they literally can't move. That happens to this day. And these are the Roman guards. These are the toughest guys of the day. We're talking about the Roman army, the most powerful uh, army of the day. And the backstory on them being there, by the way, is that the, the uh, Pharisees went to Pilate and said, that deceiver said that he was going to be raised on the third day. We're afraid the disciples are going to come and steal the body and then say he's risen from the dead. And Pilate says, make it as secure as you can. And so they set a guard, and I've seen estimates of actually a large number of Roman soldiers who are guarding this tomb. And they would not have said, hey, are you a new recruit? Why don't you come guard the most famous guy in in Israel? No, this would have been the top dogs. These were the toughest guys in the army. There they are. And even them, at the sight of this angel and the earthquake, (gasps) paralyzed. And now the angel speaks. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, it's curious to me that what paralyzes the tough Roman soldiers doesn't paralyze the women. Three cheers for the constitution of a good woman, right? Anybody feel a pang as I said that? Uh, no, they, now, are, are, they, are they afraid? Absolutely. Are they bewildered by all of this? Absolutely. And the angel wants to reassure them and says, don't be afraid like these boys over here. I have some really, really great news for you and probably the most wonderful words that the human ears have ever heard. These women have the privilege of hearing. The angel says, he is not here. Not that his body was stolen, he has risen, as he said. Now, did they understand what that meant in that moment? Probably not. It's not like they came with their theology books, oh yes, we understand all of this. They're just faithful, got good women, godly women loving Jesus, and now this news that they were not expecting, they were going there to you know, finalize the burial. They were not going there to see an empty tomb. So they didn't understand. They're bewildered by this moment. And the angel says, come on in here and see that he's not here. Now the skeptic here right now, you might be thinking to yourself, the fact that he's not there doesn't itself mean that he was resurrected from the dead. And you're exactly right. In fact, we know that the Pharisees pay off these soldiers later and says, spread a rumor that the disciples took his body. So the fact that he was not there is not itself proof. But you combine an empty tomb with the appearance of an angel and a major earthquake, and it gets you thinking. Maybe something very, very special has happened here. And indeed it had. Look at verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. I love this verse here. They ran away with fear and joy. Great fear and great joy. No doubt they did. This is that moment where they're like, they're not sure what to make of this. And they're excited, kind of, but they're also terrified and they don't know what to make of it. It reminds me of these videos you see online all the time now where, you know, the, 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 the pregnant couple is revealing the news that they're pregnant to grant, the soon-to-be grandma and grandpa, and they have some clever way of doing it. And you see the parent, the, you know, the grand, about-to-be grandparents now all of a sudden being like, oh, what? You're, oh, you know that? You know what I'm talking about? Do I need to do that again? You get it? My favorites, though, are these videos of soldiers that come back secretly. And, you know, like, for example, he, he dresses in the catcher's outfit at the baseball game. And his wife is, you know, throwing out the first pitch. And she doesn't know that her husband is there as the catcher. And she throws the ball and he catches it. And then he pulls the mask off. And you see the look on the wife's face of just like, <gasps> you know. It's precious, isn't it? You're like, you watch it, <laughs> you're crying. Here are these women, and they are filled with, it's just so human. That's what I'm saying, is that's just so human. Like if he just, Jesus just appeared right now in front of us, we all would do the same thing. 
what an Easter that would be. And now their moment, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Here now is the final proof for these women. Not that the tomb was empty, but it was, and the angels told him he did, but there he is now, standing before them. And his words to them, it always strikes me, okay? He says to them, greetings. Now, to me, I would think in that moment, you would have some very theological kind of Victoria, you know, the king is back, you know, something like that. But what does he say? He says, greetings, which was, it was the, it was the common thing of the day. It would be like us saying, hello, how are you? How's it going? I think he was trying to calm them by talking in very familiar language that they had heard him say probably many times before. But for these women, it is just this moment. And they, come, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They took hold of his feet. Interesting detail to include in the story. Why? Why take hold of his feet? Why include that? Here's why, friends. Because you can't grab a ghost. There, one of the theories for explaining the resurrection is that Jesus wasn't really bodily raised. He just looked like he was bodily raised. He was sort of a, a manifestation of what Jesus looked like. And yet, here we have uh, the women they're, they're, they're grabbing his feet. It means that it was really Jesus, right down to his toes. There he is, totally, physically resurrected and alive right before them. And they worship him and they pay homage to him. Then Jesus said to them, verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Jesus' words echo the very words of the angel, do not be afraid. I'll share this pastorally with people in our church when they're going through a hard time. Oftentimes I'll say to them, I say, hey, do you know what the the most repeated words of Jesus in the whole Bible? Do not be afraid. And in a sense, because of the resurrection, there is nothing that we really ultimately should ever fear again. It's a wonderful truth. Now, eventually they do go to Galilee and the disciples meet him there, but there's so many other things that happen. Matthew doesn't give the account, but I want to fill in the rest of the story from the other gospels. So what happens is these women, they go and they tell the disciples. And Peter and John specifically run to the tomb. And they look in and what they see is they see the, 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 the burial claws the headpiece is, is neatly folded, and the other looks like a body just like passed through it. That's what they see. And John looks at that. He says, I looked and I believed. That was his moment when he became like a follower of the risen Christ. And so they go back. You know, they leave the tomb, and they're kind of bewildered, wondering what's going on. There are two disciples, almost the same time. They're walking to a little suburb of Jerusalem known as Emmaus. And this guy comes up and walks next to them. They don't recognize him. It's Jesus. And, and he, Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? And they said, we're talking about what everybody's talking about. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who we, was a great prophet and we had hoped was the Messiah, but now he's dead. But now there's some women saying that he's alive again. And Jesus says to them, 
don't you understand the Messiah had to be raised from the dead? And he basically exegetes himself out of the Old Testament, explaining to them why this had to be the case. He gets to the end, at the end of their little episode, and they recognize him. All of a sudden they're like, (gasps) and he's gone. They go running back to the upper room, and they burst in the room, and they say, we have seen him. And the women had seen him. And in a moment, all of a sudden, there Jesus is standing before them. This is the disciples' moment of, (laughs) and he says this. He says, look, it's me. It's me. I've been raised from the dead. I am alive. Come touch me. He invites them to come and and to touch him, you know. He says, anybody got any food? This is an interesting part of the story to me. Anybody got any food? And they give him a little broiled fish, and he takes the fish, and he goes, Now, was he hungry? Like, is that what that's about? No, he was wanting to communicate to them, I am humanly, physically here, and let me show you with one of the most basic human activities. I'm gonna eat something in front of you, and you can know, ghosts don't eat fish. They eat things that are bad for them. We know from the other writings in the New Testament that he appeared to many people, Thomas later and the disciples, 500 people at one time. And all of this, every one of these, no doubt a reenactment of that moment of for the women, great fear, great joy, wonder, amazement, astonishment. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. And that is the account of the resurrection by the gospel writer and apostle Matthew. Friends, the resurrection begs so many questions and has, I think, some real answers for life. And most importantly is this. What's it mean? What's it mean? It means many things, but today I want to talk about what it means from the prism of time and time warp. Remember, I told you I'm going to pick it up here, and right now I'm picking that up. What does it mean? When we think about the present for all of us, we all know what the present is like, don't we? This is the world that we live in. We know what the past is like. All the people of the past, their items are in the Smithsonian and their stories are in history books and their bodies are in cemeteries. And these are all around us, aren't they? In fact, many of you probably drove by a cemetery on your way to church today. And I wanna ask you, as you drove by the cemetery, what did you think about? As you looked and saw Johnson, Jones, Smith, what did you think about? I'm going to guess that you thought about what most of us think about as we drive by cemeteries. Nothing. Nothing. We've trained ourselves to view a reality that is awaiting us. We've trained ourselves not to think about it. And yet, that cemetery, all those people that were there at, are, at one time were like us right now, right? They were young and vibrant, and they had dreams and goals, and they were living their life, and there were old people that lived at their time as well, and they looked at the hunched over, wrinkly man or woman, and they thought to themselves, I hope I never end up like them. 
And maybe you're here right now and you're the wrinkly hunched over senior citizen and you once thought to yourself, I don't want to be like them, and yet here you are. And all of us somewhat younger people are on our way as well. Here's the point that I'm making. We are all living in the present, but we are all in the process of sliding into the past tense. We are all is's, but we are becoming was's and were's. And for all of our importance, and the importance we place upon ourselves and our pursuits and our schedules and our dreams and goals, all our self-importance goes into the grave with us. And in that moment, we become past tense. Like you think of the greatest people that have ever lived in history, no matter how wonderful they, they were, we can only talk about them for what they were. Because when we talk about them in the present tense, they are what everybody else from the past is. They are dead, right? Everybody with me here? No confusion, I hope. And the present, of course, is somewhat similar in the sense that the present world that we lived in, live in is marked by difficulty and trouble and struggle and trials. As I said earlier, maybe you don't feel that right now, but you just wait. It is most certainly coming. And then we have moments in our life of clarity where we ask the question that is really the important question, and it's not the past tense question or the present tense question, it's the future tense. What will my experience be like? Someday. What's that, what's that going to be like for me when I am in the future of the now? And here's what I want to ask you is what if someone from the future came into the present to fix our problem from the past? Can I say that again? What if, time warp, what if somebody from the future came into the present to fix our problem from the past? And what if his coming signaled, listen, signaled that actually the future is now present? What if the resurrection was actually the beginning of the eternal future? In the here and the now, a sign of things to come, but of things that are here now. What if his coming means that rather than sliding towards the past, in him, everything is sliding towards the future? God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, life and life eternal. Jesus' resurrection, friend, it means all of that. I asked a bunch of questions, but that's, that's what it means. It means that the future has come now. It is here now. Let me tell you another story from Jesus' life that illustrates this. Jesus had three awesome friends. Mary, they were all siblings. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. Jesus hung out with them. They loved him. He loved them. Well, Lazarus became sick, and Lazarus died. And they buried him in, uh, in a tomb. And a few days later, Jesus comes. And Mary and Martha, they're still grieving over it. There's people there. They're grieving over it. And he, he says to Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yes, I know, someday in the future resurrection. 
And here's Jesus' response. I want everybody to get this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Notice, what tense is this right here? Am. Not I was and not someday, but right now I am the resurrection. I am here now and resurrection power is here now. The kingdom of God is here now. The alternate reality is available right now. And to prove it to you, watch this. Lazarus come forth. And Lazarus, with power that God alone has, comes back from the dead and comes walking out of that tomb. What was that but a powerful picture of what Jesus was saying and what I am saying to you here today? Because I know there are many people right now, you're here at Easter, and I'm so glad that you are, but your concept of all of this is like Martha's resurrection, there's sort of this future thing, and I'm really glad that there is this, but it's sort of vague, and I don't see how it connects to my life today. And what Jesus wanted Martha to realize, and the purpose of his resurrection, was to make available what has been the future, now in the present that there is eternal life available right now for anybody here who puts their faith and trust in him. It is not a someday vague thing. It is here right now. There's an alternate life, a new life available to you right now. And the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the future in the today. And everything slides towards what he is doing in this world. Now I just said a whole bunch of stuff. Did you get that? And yet I know some of you, you're prepared to walk out that door and to go right back to your present living. And what I want to tell you is you can do that, but the day is coming in your life where you're going to be confronted with the future tense. Let me give you two examples from our church this week. This week I was on the phone with a family in our church and they asked me this question. What should we do with our newborn child? This is a family member that asked me this. What should we do with our newborn child who can only survive attached to machines? That's a tough question. Here's another family in our church. The Kodiker family. They might be right here right now, I don't know. Dark Kodiker Faithful Christian man, patriarch of the family, walked with God for many, many years. This past week, he was teaching some other people how to play shuffleboard, and in that moment had a massive heart attack. And his funeral is in this room on Wednesday. What are these two families thinking about? Past tense? Present tense? Or are they wondering about the eternal future? And in both cases, Christianity's answer is this. I am the resurrection and the life. 
This is a now thing. It is a real thing. And Jesus' resurrection verified that this kingdom that he was talking about, this alternate life, is now from that point forward and on to today and into forever is available to all who will believe in him. And that's the answer to, to your thing that's about to happen in your life that you don't even know yet. And I don't know. What's the answer? Christ came and died for our sins and was raised on the third day. That life is available right now. Dart Kodiker is more alive now than he has ever been. Okay? Ever been. Because eternal life is now. And that's the answer. That is the answer to things like last week's bombing of the Egyptian Christians. 49 Christians gather on Palm Sunday, kaboom. They step into eternity. What does Christianity say? The kingdom of man stinks. Terrible things happen in the kingdom of man. But there is a new kingdom here now, and all who believe in him are in that kingdom and have now eternal life. What about you? What about you? Which kingdom are you really living in? What's your future? Our old youth pastor, Don Helton, many years ago, the very first sermon I ever heard from him, I actually listened to on a tape. And he told the story, he went to Taylor University that he, would, he lived in Kentucky, and so when he'd go home for holidays from college, he would drive down this one road, and he would always drive by a bar. And this bar had a big billboard sign on it, and it said on the sign, Free beer tomorrow. Now, why is that brilliant marketing? Some of you are still struggling to figure that out. Why is that brilliant marketing, and why did that offer never cost the bar a dime? Because it's never tomorrow. It's always today. But in Christ, the opposite is true. When he came into this world, it was tomorrow entering into today and changing forever for those who believe in him all of our eternal tomorrows and offering the opposite of the kingdom of man, which is the decline into the past, offering forever life eternal. So friends, Easter isn't great merely because There's a resurrection tomorrow. Easter is great because there is eternal life here right now. And I want so much, and my prayer is that every single person here would be in that kingdom, would be living in that alternate reality, that you would know Jesus as your Savior and have eternal life today. All of this made possible through a resurrection. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Amen.